so great to shower our land um, with with water and with rain, God. And um, we, we so desperately need it, and we're so grateful um, that today you elected to share it with us. God, we ask uh, today, uh, as Ben brings your sermon, and as we learn more about the, the minor prophet of Haggai and what, what it is you want us to, to understand, God, and uh, just just help us remember that you are always present, you are always working, God. And, and the same promises you made to the Israelites years ago, Father, you, you, you offer those same promises to us today, life eternal with you, God. So we ask uh, this morning that we prepare our hearts, that we open our minds to what it is you want to accomplish this morning. God, we love you and we praise you. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you, Kenny, for leading us this morning. Hi, guys. We're going to be, we're going to finish up chapter one. So, <laughs> uh, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew. So, if you can get to Matthew and just go back a few books in the Bible, that's where we're at. Haggai is a prophet that was written uh, after the exile, after the southern kingdom had come back from Babylon in the 70-year uh, exile. Uh, Haggai is a unique prophet, and we'll see some of those reasons why he's very unique. It's the second shortest book in the Old uh, Testament, but there's a lot of truth here for us and a lot of, of things for us to watch. So I'm not going to go over the history like I did uh, last week. If, if you want to hear that and you weren't here, that's online, and you can go look at that. I really just want to get into the text this week. Um, I'm going to start by just pointing out that the word revival brings a lot of ideas up amongst Christians. Uh, we always hear someone says that we should pray for revival. You always hear preachers or leaders of ministries, if you go different places, they'll say, I feel revival is starting here. But, but one of the questions we need to ask when we talk about revival is, well, what does the Bible say? And what's interesting with the book of Haggai is we're going to get to see that this morning. One of the reasons that Haggai is unique, especially amongst the prophets, is, is most of the prophets are, are writing or they're saying their messages, and they're twofold messages. They're messages of judgment and they're messages of hope. The judgment is, you disobeyed God's commands, and so now there's this judgment that takes place. And so the exile is what happens. So it's either you, you need to obey, or this will happen, this judgment's going to come. You disobeyed, that's why this has come, or you're in this predicament because you didn't obey God's commands. That's the message of judgment. Haggai's on the backside of that. And the messages of hope that, that the prophets give is also unique, right? The, the messages of profile, hope are there's going to be a new exodus that will take place. There's going to be a, a new Passover lamb, a new temple, a new covenant, a new king that God is going to send. And so Haggai proclaims that message just like the other Old Testament prophets do. But if you read Scripture, what happens with the other Old Testament prophets is they proclaim these messages, they say these words, and then they're just ignored by the people of God. Not in Haggai. Haggai proclaims his message in what we see is one of the rare instances where the people hear the word of God, they repent, and they obey. It's a unique book in that sense. 
And so we're going to dive into this. We're going to look at at what's happening. If you remember, Haggai is writing about 15, 16 years after they've come back from the exile. When they get back, they set up the altar so that they can make sacrifices. They lay the foundation of the temple. And then you have the Samaritans uh, who are not good neighbors. Think harmly for us, Samaritan for Israel. Just not good neighbors. Nobody wants to deal with them. That one didn't. All right. Uh, on the Israelites wanted to help, but then kind of got mad when the Israelites said no, and so they appeal to the king and, and kind of get some of those plans thwarted. But that's not the only reason the Israelites stopped building the temple. They stopped building it because th- their houses were in ruins. They had other things that came up. Money was getting tight. Funds were not what they thought they should be or were. So there's all of these pressures. They cease making the temple, and then Haggai comes along and says, okay, it's time to, to get to work. It's time to rebuild the temple. And so we read uh, all the way through verse 11 last week. We see Haggai saying all of these different things. We're going to pick up in verse 12 this morning. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shittel, the high priest, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God in the words of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God sent him. So the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. And the Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shittil, the governor of Judah, and the high priest Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of all the people. And they began to work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Let's pray. Father, as we walk through uh, this short, just four verses of Scripture, but we see your people being obedient, and we see what you do when we hear your call and we obey God. I pray that you would stir our hearts, that you would help us to understand, God, what revival is and what revival isn't. That you'd help us to understand how you work amongst your people, how you, you use situations and circumstances to grow us closer to you. But most importantly, God, it's your word that brings life. Help us to be centered on that this morning. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Convict us where we need conviction. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to read uh, chapter twelve or verse 12 again. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shittel, the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God sent him so the people feared the Lord. So Haggai comes in with this message, and the message is it's time to rebuild the temple. If you remember, he continued last time to say, think carefully about your ways. Think about what you're doing. Think about your life. Think about what you value the most and what you value the least. And what you should be valuing the most is the temple because that's where God dwelt among his people. Or that's symbolically where God dwelt among his people. But they decided to make their houses work first, to get their houses livable before they made God's house livable. And so Haggai is now saying, it's time to rebuild the temple. And we left off last week not knowing how the Israelites were going to respond. I think it's interesting and it's important for us and it's a point that needs to be made that in the book of Haggai, when we see their response, it starts with their leadership. Zerubbabel and Joshua obey 
God and they lead the people to obey as well. And, and not just simply saying, okay, we will build the temple. They repent because they hear the words of the prophet Haggai. Repentance isn't easy and it isn't, I'm sorry that I got caught. Repentance isn't even really, I'm sorry. Repentance is understanding, realizing that you sin, that you are in sin. It's calling sin, sin. It's not nulling it down. It's not made. It's understanding what sin is, that it's a punishment, and it's turning from that sin, and it's turning towards Christ. It's not turning from that sin to another sin. That's not repentance. It's not apologizing with words, but never really changing. It demands an action from us. It's, and it's not always internal, and it's not always supposed to be private. If you sin against somebody else, the Bible calls us to apologize, repent to them. That is where revival tends to start. And did you notice how revival starts here? With the hearing of the word of God. We tend to think of revivals, we think contemporary music, a fog machine, good-looking worship leader. We didn't have that this morning. We tend to think of worship as loud. We tend to think of revival as individual. We tend to think of all of those things when it comes to revivals. But when we look at the Word of God and we see groups of people repenting and shifting towards the Lord, towards the Lord there's one thing that tends to start it. It's a proclamation of the word of God. It's understanding that worship simply, worship, we sing, and that is worship, but we sing specific songs. We sing words of the word. Worship is not an issue like that we just do. We, we worship all of the time. Worship is not something that we turn on and we turn off. Worship is how we live our lives all of the time. Worship is an issue of the heart. It's not an issue of the band or the music style. It's an issue of what we believe, who we're, what we're doing, how we value things, worth-ship, what we're assigning worth to in our life. We do this all of the time with everything. And so when we read in the Bible and we see people being shifted, we think of Peter when he's preaching the sermons in Acts and there's these large crowds that are being saved. I'm certain there's worship there, but what we're told is it's the proclamation of the word that's moving these people to the Lord. So we look at this and we think about revival and we think it's not about contemporary music versus traditional music. There are contemporary songs that are really good, and there are contemporary songs that are outright terrible. There are hymns that are really good, and there are hymns that are outright terrible. That's not the right battle to fight. What we try to do, what the point of worship is, is we sing songs to prepare our hearts to hear the word of the Lord, and then we sing a song afterwards that help our hearts to meditate on what's been proclaimed. So this is just going to be a cold hard truth that's not sewed onto pillows, but we need to hear it. If you want revival, but you do not want a sermon, you do not want a biblical revival. If you want just a revival that's filled with worship and singing the most popular songs to get your emotions revved up and your feelings revved up, the reality is you are worshiping, but you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping your own ideas. 
you, your worship with God can only be hindered by your heart. So let's say the whole sound system just crashes. Let's say I have to lead worship, and it's just going to be rough. There was that one funeral, and it felt like it. All the instruments break. In theory, we should still be able to worship God. Because it's not a matter of instruments or sound systems. It's a matter of where our heart posture is with the Lord. And, And one of the most basic things with revival is to recognize that it is the word of God that is doing these things. And did you catch how the people respond to the word of God? Fear. They feared God. When I was growing up, my mom came home and she didn't know I was home. And so she goes to her bedroom, our house in, in where I grew up, like the her bedroom, she had it used to be a den. And then she so she had like a bedroom, a computer room, uh, a bathroom. We just got one bedroom apiece, but mom got this whole suite in the back. But the bathroom had this narrow hallway and then it would go and it was just a like a commode and and a sink. And so mom goes into her bathroom, she's going to the bathroom, I guess. I didn't go check. But I decided I was going to jump out and scare her because she didn't know I was there. And so I hide. I hear her take a few steps down the hallway, and then I jump out. Rah! Mom screamed like a girl. But she also channeled up all of her anger, like motherly anger, into her arms and shoved me as hard as she possibly could. I'm not, I was not as big then as I am now. I was pretty frail. And so my skeletal body flew across the room. I didn't call CPS, but I threatened. I scared mom. She wounded me. That is not the kind of fear that Haggai is talking about. He doesn't proclaim his message and then all of the people of Israel are like, we have to get to work or God is going to scare the daylights out of us. And if God decides to scare you in that kind of way, I can't imagine what that would feel like or look like. But that's not the kind of fear that Haggai is talking about. What he's talking about when we think of it is more like reverence or respect. It's the kind of fear that comes when you're in the presence of somebody that you've always admired, somebody like a celebrity or your, your favorite sports player. If you come in contact with them out in the wild, they're at Walmart, you're at Walmart. It's that kind of fear that wells up where you kind of get sweaty, you don't know what to say, you don't want to be just like a normal person asking for an autograph, but you definitely want to get an autograph. That's the kind of idea, the, the reverence that comes across is it's this, this idea of I understand that they're greater than I am. That's the kind of fear that's being evoked in the people. Is they recognize we did build our houses and not the Lord's. We started and then we stopped. And God is far greater than us. We're not God. He is God. We're not God. There should be a reverence. There should be a healthy fear, a healthy respect for God in that way. And it's healthy because we, it helps us to remember that we are not God. Our plans can be thwarted. And as frustrating as that might be, most of the time when our plans don't go our way, in the grand scheme of our life, it really doesn't matter that much. Because we're not God. 
So sometimes when we think about God, we think maybe when I die I'll, and, or Jesus comes back, I'm going to see him face to face. And it's just going to like seeing an old friend and just hanging out and talking to Jesus. And it might eventually get that way, but I don't think it will be that way initially. I think we will die and we will stand in front of the Lord and we will go, this is the God I can see face to face. This is petrifying. This is the God who knows everything about me. Everything. This is the God that died in my place. This is the God that sustained me through all of those hard times. I I talk a lot, and I very rarely run out of words, and I am almost positive I will be speechless for a little while. Because what do you say? Hello? How you been? No. It will be pure, undefiled, silent, worship of God because there's a healthy respect a healthy fear a healthy reverence that will take place especially when we see the Lord face to face and what Haggai is showing us is it's that healthy fear that spurs on revival it's not this idea that God is your buddy who's never going to get mad at you and life is rainbows, unicorns, and oatmeal cream pies that's not the God of the Bible God is holy, God is just, God is God, and you and I are not. And he did what you and I could not do. He lived a perfect life, and he died the death that you and I deserve. And on the cross, Jesus atones for our sin, the wrath of God that we deserve. For no reason other than it brings God glory, and he loves us in ways that I can't fully understand. We have fear and we have reverence for God. And when we do those things, revival can come. So true revival means repentance and obedience to the word of God. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. So the Lord's messenger gives the Lord's message. Do you hear like how, how the Hebrew works there, right? It's <laughs> Haggai is speaking, but he's the Lord's messenger, and it's God's message, right? So Haggai is saying things, but these things are from the Lord. And what have the people done? They delayed building the temple. What's the significance of the temple? That's where God dwelt among his people. God had brought them to the promised land. God had settled them in Jerusalem. They had houses. They had homes. But at the time when David was ruling, God was still living in a tent in the tabernacle and David wanted to make it permanent. And so David recognizes that God doesn't have a permanent home, that he lives in these tents, this tabernacle. And so God, uh, while everybody else is dwelling in bricks, the exact opposite of what happens in Haggai. They're living in their houses and just figure it out, God. You can go anywhere. But David recognizes that God wants a place to dwell among his people, or that David wanted God to dwell among his people. It's a lot harder to move a brick house than it is a tent. And so David tries to build a house, but God stops him. David wants to build God a house that he can be proud of, a a beautiful, beautiful temple. And God says, your heart is in the right place, but your hands are stained with blood. So instead, your son, Solomon, will build the temple. 
But God gives David the, the, the covenant right here. He'll, but you're going to carry on the line of the snake crusher. You're going to carry on the messianic line. There's going to come from you. One of your descendants will be a king who rules a kingdom that will never end. And so David collects the, spot, the supplies. And then when Solomon becomes king, he builds the temple. And so now God dwells among his people in a more permanent capacity. His temple is ornately decorated. They get the most skilled craftsmen available to do so. If you look like, if you read about the temple and on the inside, there's palm trees. There's all sorts of things that's meant to remind them of the Garden of Eden. Where God fully dwelt with his people. This is what makes the exile so horrific. Like the Babylonians don't just come and take the Israelites and take them to Babylon. They come and they knock down not just their houses, not just the walls to Jerusalem. They destroy the whole city, but they destroy the temple too. So what does that mean for their theology? If that's where God dwelt among his people and then they destroy the house of God, what it looks like on the outside in is that the Babylonian gods are greater than the God of the Israelites. That's not the case. We know the truth that God allowed the Babylonian gods to feel that way for just a little bit. If you read about Nebuchadnezzar's demise in Daniel, it's pretty funny what ends up happening. No. So the people come back 70 years later, and what do they come back to? Rubble. The whole city is destroyed. And so they start to rebuild. And they do a good job. We know the story of Nehemiah where they rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. We know the story of Ezra where they read the scripture and they weep because they, they're hearing the word of God. And so they begin building their houses back up. They lay the foundation and then life happens and they just delay. But remember, Haggai tells us they repented. They turned from their sins. This is why the words that Haggai tells us in verse 13 are so important. Did you hear what God says to them? I am with you. I am dwelling amongst you. I'm not confined to the walls of a temple. It's symbolic of his presence. He's still with his people. In fact, he never left his people. In Babylon, Daniel is saved by God multiple times. He was with them in Babylon. He brought them back. Now they need to rebuild the temple so everybody else knows that the Babylonian gods aren't nearly as good as the God of the Israelites. And just a side note, it's interesting for us right at Christmas time that we'll sing songs about Jesus and we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Like there is this play that takes on through scripture of God's presence dwelling with his people. So true revival is obedience and it's repentance. It's not watering down our sin, but it's also not making our sin more either. The Lord offers grace and the Lord offers mercy. The Lord offers forgiveness of sin, forgiveness of sins, because God is with us. He hasn't left us. So praise the Lord for this truth. The good news is, you and I cannot outrun God. Ask Jonah how that worked out. Ask Peter how that worked out. Ask Paul how that worked out. <laughs> Let's see whose it is. That's right. 
Uh, just repent of your alarm. Obey the Lord. All right, we're good. We cannot outrun God. Jonah tried to go the exact opposite way, and God sent a fish to eat him and keep him alive. Peter denied Jesus three times before the rooster crows, right after he tried to chop off a guy's ear and tell Jesus, I will never deny you, you don't know me. Paul was on his way to kill Christians, to imprison Christians, running from the Lord as fast and as furiously as he could, even though he didn't know he was running from him. It does not work. You cannot outrun the God. You are a really good sinner, and God is a far better Savior than you and I could ever imagine. His love finds us in the deepest pit and in the worst situations, and he redeems us and he rescues us. Praise God for his grace and mercy. So revival comes when we repent and we obey God, and revival comes when we understand that there is grace and that there is mercy in the Lord. Verse 14. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shittel, the governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Well, this is important for us to understand what happens here, right? If we're understanding revival, if we're understanding God working with his people, turning and saving some and drawing others to, to be with him more and more, then, then what is the action? Who is doing the work in this text? When we look at it, mainly what we see is it's the Lord who's doing the action. It's God who rouses the spirit of the governor Zerubbabel. It's God who rouses the spirit of the high priest uh, 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 Joshua. It's God who rouses the spirit of the remnant of the rest of the people. And I love the little nuance that's taking place here. All of the people repented. That was the idea of the last one, where all of the people repented and then we're like, but all of the people was just a small fraction of the people because there's only a remnant of them that's left. Right? We see this balance between the sovereignty of God and, and human free will. The God is absolutely sovereign. And revival starts when God rouses spirits. But what does that look like? It looks like obeying God and doing what he commands. We're not simply puppets and we're not simply robots with no will and no desire. We simply do what God has us do and we're forced to do so whether we want to or not. That's not the truth of what scripture says, but God is absolutely sovereign. Our desires, our emotions, our feelings, they can lie to us. And if we choose to follow them over the Lord, then we are in sin and we are punished for our sin. God does not and will not ever will you to sin, to rebel against him. Anytime someone is saved in the Bible, the credit goes fully and solely to the Lord. And anytime someone sins in the Bible, it goes and the blame is placed on the person who sins. So our free will and the sovereignty of God are two points of tension that we hold together. This is an area that we will not fully ever understand because we're not God. We hold them together. We recognize that both are true. We may not understand exactly how those things work out. I, I have this free will, but God is completely sovereign over me. How does that measure it? We may not understand fully and completely what that means and how that plays out, but the Bible's very clear that both of those two things are true. We are responsible for repenting and turning to Jesus, and only God can save us. So we trust God. But what this means when we think about revivals is that you and I do not have the power to save anyone. Our job is to be faithful to God. 
So we proclaim gospel words. We, we try to obey God's words. We, we live faithful lives. We call people to repentance and to a relationship with Jesus, not because we have the power to save them, but because by God's grace and by God's mercy, he's invited us into this mission, this redemption mission with him. He's placed us here for this purpose and for this reason, to make much out of Jesus and to be a gospel light for our community so that those who are believers are sanctified and grow in the Lord and those who are unbelievers are drawn to Jesus and saved. We're used by God, so we obey God as best as we can. Understanding that typically God is building something bigger and far deeper and different than we could ever imagine. The temple that these people are rebuilding in Haggai is the same temple that Jesus is going to be left at when he's a little boy. It's the same temple that Jesus is going to go to and flip the table's head. It's the same temple that when Jesus is on the cross and he breathes his last breath, the Bible tells us that the curtain, that's the curtain in this temple they're building is going to be torn from top to bottom. It's the same temple. It's the same temple when Jesus looks at the Pharisees and the the, the Jewish authorities and he says, you can kill me, but in three days I'm going to come back and tear down the temple. I'm going to tear down the temple and rebuild it. This is the temple that Jesus is talking about. It's the the same temple that Paul thinks about when Paul says, God is making your heart a temple. That God is going to dwell, to tabernacle inside of you. Right, so this particular building that they're building carries a lot of significance, but it's pointing to something that they never fully, truly would have understood. They may have caught glimpses. But from their perspective, they're simply obeying God to the best of their abilities. They don't know the whole plan. They just know they're supposed to rebuild the temple. But also notice what day they start construction. The 24th day, the 6th month, the 2nd year of King Darius. If you look at the very first verse of Haggai, it says they, in the 2nd year of King Darius on the first day of the 6th month. That means they heard the message on the first day of the sixth month and did not start building until the 23rd day of the sixth month. 23 days. Were they delaying obedience again? What is going on? What we see happening in this happening with them, which is true in, in true biblical revivals, is it's not emotional. Not at least like an emotional immediate reaction and then when you leave the place it kind of dies down. 23 days is a long time. That's like three weeks and some change. Yet their fervor, their desire doesn't wane. Probably what happens is it's the harvest season. They hear the word from Haggai, they harvest what they're supposed to harvest, and then instead of resting, they immediately start begin working on the temple when they're done. There's a piece of advice I received when I first felt called to ministry, and it was pray for 30 days about it every day. If you feel led by the Lord to to be a pastor, to go into ministry, every single day pray for a whole month. And if you can't pray for a whole month about your call to ministry, then maybe this is an emotional decision and not something that the Lord has for you. Because 30 days, especially in a teenager's life, a lot of things happen. 
And if you miss a day, it's okay, but you have to restart your count. It was one of the best pieces of advice I, I received. What we see happening here is there's 23 days. This isn't a revival where it just starts and then it never stops and it's just this emotional thing that's taking place and people are weeping and crying. This is 23 days. Haggai's message spreads. People respond in obedience because the Lord is really working on their hearts. So there's a dangerous thing that takes place this time of year, especially within Baptist churches. On the heels of Easter, there's churches and there's pastors that... I think it's from a good desire, but I don't think it's healthy. We fill the baptistry, or we'll get people to sign cards, or we'll make all these plans. We'll say how many people attended our services, we'll, how many services we had. We do all of these sorts of things, but in the end, we'll, we'll end up baptizing a whole lot of people who make the emotional decisions, but we have no idea if they're actually saved or not, if they're just making a decision to make mom happy, to make grandma happy, or just something that they feel like they're supposed to do. Baptism in the Bible is very different than that. People got baptized, but you get baptized as a believer. And after you're baptized, you are discipled. It's hard to tell in many cases if it's an emotional decision. We, I, I tend, if you've talked to me, or we talk, especially with little kids, we tend, I encourage you to delay. Baptism doesn't save us. It's a sign of what the Lord has done. Now, you need to be baptized if you're a believer and you haven't been baptized, but, but we want to make sure that that's real. We want to make sure that there's some substance to that, that there's truth there, that it's not some emotional decision that you're making, that you understand what you're doing. Because on the other side of this, what you have now is if you look around and you look at statistics, there's a massive movement going on on the outskirts of Christianity where people are leaving in droves. They're recanting Christ, and what they're saying is, I'm tired of pretending like I'm a Christian when I'm not. I walked down, and I prayed with the pastor. I went down, and I got baptized. We went to the church services. We did the things we're supposed to do. It just isn't real. And so they're not ending up simply as unbelievers. They're ending up hating the church. They hate the Bible. They hate Jesus. But at one point in their life, they made an emotional decision to get dunked underwater, to walk the aisle, to pray the prayer, but it wasn't real. Revival, salvation, it's not something that you and I can force somebody to do, so we shouldn't trick them into feeling like we can save them. And, And it is emotional. Salvation is emotional, but it is not temporary. Emotions are given to us by God for a purpose, for God's glory, to use them as such, but they are not the ultimate authority in our life. Your heart is a liar. My heart is a liar. We must hold it to the standard of what the Word of God says. Revival is not about a feeling. It's about Jesus. The danger for us with where we live is we are prone to emotionalism. If it feels right, it must be right. If it feels wrong, it must not be from the Lord. If it's a hard time, then it's Satan attacking me, and it's not God sending these things for you to repent. 
And we long for emotional responses. When we think of churches that are healthy and that are growing, we think of people weeping and coming down the aisle. We think of hands raised in worship. We, we think of it as a spiritual service. But if we look at Haggai, if we look at Scripture and see what revival looks like in the Bible, it's less emotional and it's more word-centered. Now in Ezra, when they read the Scripture, the people weep. But those emotions are brought about by the Word of God. Not by turning the music up and playing minor chords. But our struggle is pastors and churches are judged based on the number of decisions they can get people to make, the number of baptisms they can conduct, the amount of people that they can get in the pews, the amount of services that they have, or the amount of funds that they have in their accounts, or the amount that they can get to various things. There's all sorts of secondary ways that we judge churches or that we feel like our churches are judged. And the reason why we judge those things is because they're easy to measure, but they do not tell you the whole picture of the truth of the church. So I've said for a long time, our goal as a church is to walk a gospel-centered path. But it's really hard to say, are we doing that right or not, if you just look at the statistics of what we have. Those things can be good. I'm not, baptism is a phenomenal thing that the Lord has given to us. Salvation is a great thing that the Lord has given to us. Attendance is a great thing that the Lord has given to us. But we must make sure we're judging our church by the standards that God has put in place. Is our church healthy or are we unhealthy? Are we given to revival or revivalism? So what does a healthy church look like? Expository preaching. You open up the Bible and you preach the Bible. It's not that complicated. (laughs) Congregational worship. It is not about a show that's being put on on stage. It's about all of us as one people worshiping God together. Discipleship and evangelism together. We, salvation is the starting line, it's not the finish line. So when you become a believer, there's expectations that you're going to grow in your faith after that, that you're going to read the Bible, that you're going to attend, that you're going to sing together, that you're going to disciple others, and somebody's going to disciple you, that you will grow in your faith, and that you will continue sharing the gospel with others. It's a two-sided coin. Intentional church membership. I think I said in Deacon's meeting, I think we're the hardest church in Scurry County to join. And it's okay. We have a member class. We do interviews. I talk and I pray. And from those conversations, we've had multiple people baptized because of things that we just didn't know. It should matter to be a member of the church. You should care with one another. We have a covenant that we commit to one another and what we're going to do. A healthy church encourages repentance of sin. A healthy church encourages a reliance on the grace and mercy of Jesus. Because revivals that are scheduled typically don't work. It's all of us as one body just trying to figure it out. My hope is that we'll be in a revival and we won't even realize it. We'll just look up one day and we'll go, holy cow, look what the Lord is doing. We just had our heads ducked, we were discipling, we were loving one another, and look what the Lord has brought to us. 
The gospel's more than emotions and feelings. It's news. It's a declaration that something has happened. It has substance. It's Jesus in my place. So how do you respond to the gospel? Whether that's repent of sin for the first time and turn to Jesus for the first time, or if it's repent of sin for the two millionth time. Maybe it's turn to Jesus and rest in his grace and his mercy that there's sin and that there's struggles and that there's shame that you tend to find yourself in. And, and, and that's not what the gospel is. It's not just wallowing in how terrible we are. It's rejoicing in how great the Lord is. For some, it's come back to the Lord. There are prodigals all around. For some, it's come to the Lord for the first time that you're lost. You don't know who Jesus is, or you know, but he is not your Savior. For the proud, the call is to be humbled. For the lazy, the call is to be active. For the selfish, the call is to be covenantally committed. For the unlovable, the call is to be loved by God. For the unforgivable, the call is to be forgiven by God. The gospel call goes out. Lean into the good news of Jesus and respond accordingly with repentance, obedience, trusting in the grace and the mercy of the Lord, and knowing that when God works, it's God who does the work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for Jesus and the finished work of the cross. I thank you that we can gather together, that we can worship, and that we can glorify you. I pray now, God, as we sing this song, that you would help us, that you would help our hearts to reflect on your word. That you would encourage us where we need encouragement, and you would convict us where we need conviction. Thank you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.